you have a Bible and you want to read along with our scripture reading, we're going to take a reading from the book of Matthew chapter 13. And um, today, as I studied throughout the day, this is a parable that I could not shake. And um, I'm a little envious of Brother Harvey. He's uh, preached this week on a lot on Jesus. And the last two or three times I've gone to preach, I've tried to force myself to preach on Jesus, uh, but just have not felt the freedom to do so, not felt the um, compulsion to. But I appreciate his message last night and uh, how it revealed the character of Christ to us. And um, I suppose if I have felt led this week, it's to express the opposite. Um, And that is us, our character, our attitude. We need both. We need to learn about what Christ has done, and we need to learn about what we ought to do. And uh, I felt inclined this week towards that. didn't recognize that really until today I began to think about it. Um, but I'm going to try to, again, look to some of those attitudes of heart that God desires for us to have. And if you have a Bible, again, we're going to read in Matthew chapter 13. And I'm going to read this entire portion of this parable It's 23 verses long, so from verse 1 to verse 23. And so I encourage you to hear the parable this evening of Jesus. It says in verse 1, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that when he went into a ship and sat, the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in the parable, in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. When he had sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground, and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand." And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, 
and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon, or immediately, with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when in tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word, and understandeth it, which also bear fruit, and bring forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. That'll conclude our reading this evening, and sorry if I mispronounced or misspoke in some occasions in this lengthy scripture reading. Um, this is reading Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. And tonight we want to talk about, in the last revival I remember today, um, having preached on this text, but only focused upon the very final group of people, and that was those on good ground. And tonight I'd like to take a larger view and look at these four different types of people who come under the sound of the gospel and what their responses are to this gospel message. Before we get into our message tonight and we look at this parable and go down Jesus has organized it very easily for us, and so we're going to follow the pattern that he's laid out for us in looking at this. With one exception tonight, we want to look at very first, verse 17 of our scripture reading tonight, and use that as a jumping off point for our thought. It says this, For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Now tonight, um, as I was considering this particular verse in the context of this series of parables that Jesus gave over this um, chapter, I began to think about, um, I've been preaching now for about 17 years, and uh, I know that's not as long as many as the brothers that are here, or perhaps many others. But in that time, um, God has blessed me to be able to preach to a whole lot of people in a lot of different places. Um, Been out to the West Coast, and Alaska, and Oregon. Been all through the Midwest and the South. Been over to Africa, and down to Belize. During COVID, I was online, like many preachers were online, and who knows where all the word, uh, the word went during that time. Um, have been to college campuses and preached on the street. Have been to downtown cities and preached on the street. Have been out in tent meetings where strangers in my community walked up and some listened for five minutes, some for 30 or 40 minutes. Some came back multiple nights and listened. I've debated people. Um, 
who didn't believe, wanted to try to undermine the veracity of the scriptures. And during that time, preaching to those various people, I've come across all different types of people. And I took a few moments today to just think about the different types of people that I've come across in the short 17 years that I've preached. I've preached to people that, from their attitude, seemed too good to hear the word. They were, to use modern language, I guess, a little too uppity for church, for the gospel. Um, They were preoccupied with more important things and didn't really care too much to listen to the word. Preached to people who were completely broken, sat with men who cried like a baby because he just watched his wife and his children walk out the door because he had problems that he couldn't let go of. Seeing old people. I can remember sitting with an old man who was bitter, angry at God because he had lived a hard life. And you could tell that it seemed as though every day that his bitterness just compounded and compounded and compounded the more. Sat with the opposite of that. Sat with young people who, as my secular profession was for a number of years, as we inched closer and closer to the month of June or or May when their graduation was about to take place, they were ready to grab the world and, 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 and just take off. And some of them had all the potential in the world, saw some go to Ivy League schools and try to share with them the gospel. They had their hearts and their minds set on something more important in their minds. Something that, you know, someday they would deal with that. But right now, they just wanted to focus on the potential of realizing the potential of their life and aspiring to all the dreams that they've laid out before them. Preach to people who were deceived. 16 months, I preached in a church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and The majority of the people in that church accepted Christ as their personal Savior, but I don't believe ever had a true conversion experience with God. Saw the varieties of personalities of people who grew up in church and accepted Christ when they were just five or six years old because mom and dad accepted Christ and perhaps people before that accepted Christ. And so having reasoned and tried to reason with some of those older men and older women their look towards this younger man was, you've got to be crazy because that would mean that my parents were wrong and my grandparents were wrong and that they, their hope rested and their intellectual acceptance of Christ and what you're basically telling me without saying it is that if that's all they have, they're not going to be in heaven right now and I can't accept that. Talked with people who grew up in church. Their whole life, they were under the sound of the gospel. Some of them young and some of them middle-aged, some of them older. And they listened to a thousand sermons or perhaps thousands of sermons. 
and even in some in their older age, became the most faithful attenders to church of anybody at the church. As they inched closer and closer to eternity, they felt the priorities of church and God and the consideration of their soul rise on the priority list. New people who church was compartmentalized. Every Sunday they were at church, perhaps extra services throughout the week would ebb and flow. Sometimes they'd come whenever life permitted it. and Sometimes when life was busy, they wouldn't. God held this compartment in their life. And as long as unspoken, more important things didn't encumber their time, and they were at church. I remember seeing a man just minutes before he died. Had not given consideration to God his whole life. And then one of his neighbors, who I was good friends with, called me and said, my neighbor's on his deathbed and he's asking for a preacher. Can you come? So late into the night, I drove over to this man's house, never met him before, never seen his face till that moment that I know of. Walked in and he was laying in this bed and his mind was coming and it was going. And in moments of clarity, he would was so mindful of what was right in front of him. And he couldn't have told you anything about the gospel. I don't know that he ever sat in church, or if he did, he had forgotten everything that he'd ever learned. And there he sat. I'm tempted to say knowing that just moments away, whatever his fate was, was going to be sealed. Or rather, what his destiny was, probably a better way to put it, would be sealed. I tried to explain to him the gospel in just a few moments. I prayed all the way over there, Lord, help me. I don't know what I'm coming into. I don't know what I'm going to have to say. Tried to tell him the gospel. After I got to my car, he died. I remember sitting at a bus stop one time, preaching at IU's campus. Brother Ferris, I guess, being here reminds me of this. All these people were walking by us. We were singing and we were preaching. And I think the Lord had a lot of reasons why that I needed to do that, why we needed to do that. But I can't help but believe, you know, there were a lot of people and the majority of the people that were passing by were ridiculing, making fun of us. And some of these boys got behind us when we had our songbooks up and they were singing in operatic voices, laughing. And I began to preach. And it was right by a bus stop. I don't think we realized it at the time when we stood there, but there was a young lady, I believe it was, who was sitting at that bus stop. And at first she was looking for the bus. And then she slowly kind of looked around to watch us occasionally. And then the next thing you knew, she turned all the way around the curb and she was just staring at us, listening. Preached up a Kokomo's revival and they had out in a park one day. And it was in this big amphitheater right by this huge park. And there were probably 150 families, or excuse me, 150 people with their families. And the kids were playing at the park and people were riding bikes and people were sitting in picnics. And 
all these different people. That's just my little experience. And yet we could go around and hear these different ministers that probably could express tenfold the various groups of people that they've preached to. And Jesus divides all of these people from all of these different places, all of these different stations in life, all of these different things on the forefront of their minds and priorities, different genders, ethnicities, religious backgrounds, painful experiences which have scarred them for the remainder of their life, innocence, all varying stages. Jesus takes all of this, all of us, and he places us into four categories. He reveals to us that when the gospel goes out, basically there are four types of people in their attitude to the gospel message. And tonight, I want to look at a couple of these, and I want you to ask yourself the question, which are you? Or rather, ask the Lord that. Ask the Lord to reveal to you, as you hear the descriptions of this person, or rather these people, because that's what he's talking about. He's talking about people. When we apply the parable tonight, he's talking about people right in this room. And perhaps all of us fit into some of these categories. Or in other words, all four categories are probably sitting before us tonight. And ask God to reveal to you, what am I truly? Not what do I want to be, what do I aspire to be, but what am I truly when the word of God is going out, what is the condition or rather the degree of receptiveness receptiveness of my heart? Jesus begins this parable and he, before he explains it, he tells us this. There have been prophets down through the ages and kings that have desired to be sitting where you're sitting right now. What does he mean by that? What, why does he say to them, and no doubt the reason he said it to them, even perhaps to a greater degree applies to us. And he says, there have been prophets in days of old and kings before Jesus that in their hearts longed to be like us. Now I know a little bit what that's like because I've been to Africa and I've been down to Belize and I've communicated with people throughout the world. And let me tell you that the biggest part of the world from a natural perspective dreams about what your life is like. They envy you to a degree that would blow your mind. Just to have a little place, a little shack, running water and electricity, to have a job that doesn't require them to wake up early in the morning and work 12 and 14 and 16 hour days laboring by the sweat of their brow and by the callousness of their hands. They long people all over the world in so much that they'll come and just come up and want to touch me. They just want to rub you. They want to touch your your arm and your legs and, and just want to see what it's like to be you. 
And Jesus is revealing to us that there was a group of people down through the ages that wanted to be where we're at, but it had nothing to do with our prosperity. It has to do with our understanding or our opportunity to hear what we hear all the time. You see, I think about those days before Moses penned the book, of Ge- the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I think about those days prior to where any written word was given. And I think for just a moment that those people having the same nature that you and I do and self-evident truth about God The guilt of sin that you and I face and our lost people have expressed that they have faced over the the last number of nights. Many of them have felt this convicting power that has caused you to, to seek after God. Now I want you to imagine having experienced that deep conviction and not having a place where you can go to hear what you need to do about it. Like isn't it a wonderful thing that when We have family members or we have friends or we have people in our lives where they're saying, my life is crushed and broken and I don't know what to do. That you and I can say, well, I know what you need to do. Like, isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that there are people who have lived all throughout the history of the world and all throughout the world today and they're groping and they're grasping for something because something within them is protesting, something within them is preaching to them and saying, everything is not right with you. And the same conviction that our kids have felt that perhaps breaks our heart. How much more does it break our hearts to know that there are people who are, do not have the advantage of knowing where to go and what questions to ask. And that they don't have an outlet or rather an inlet to get the gospel truth as to what they need to do with this terrible feeling that is inside of them. And those people have names and they have families and they have dreams and they feel fear about tomorrow, and they think about death, just like our children do. And so, lost person tonight, I want you to know that you sit in the highest seat in history. Because there's a little seed... And I love, I love how Jesus speaks here. And I won't get into all the background. I've taken longer than I expected getting into this. But Jesus is just talking to simple people. And as Brother Harvey has remarked about the various qualities of our Lord, His condescension to speak simply is one that I value so highly. In other words, He didn't come and speak like a theologian. He came and he preached with simplicity and clarity. Because in the end, he wanted people to understand what was being said and respond accordingly. And so Jesus uses this visual, and it's such a powerful visual. Because when we really stop and consider for a moment, he uses the analogy that the gospel is like a little seed. Now, this time of year, this ought to mean more to some of us, perhaps, because we just got done working with seeds a couple months ago. 
I know many people in our church have little gardens, flower gardens and vegetable gardens. And you take that little tiny seed and really, in and of itself, in that package or holding in your hand, it really has no value. You can't eat it. Or if you do eat it, it doesn't have any life-sustaining value to you. You may chew a certain kind of seed because you like the taste, but it's not going to nourish you for very long. It's just this most peculiar and tiny thing that if you didn't know what it did, you would think it just has no value whatsoever. And yet, can we not all admit tonight that truly, even though they're common, a seed is one of the most vital things on earth. And Jesus teaches us that the seed is the gospel. His word. And what his word, for it to really flourish, for it to produce and yield, you've got to put it in the dirt. When God created a seed, he created it with the intention that it be placed in the dirt and that by having it placed in the dirt, that it would, I would almost say, miraculously will do this thing and the sun will hit it and the water will fall upon it and then all of a sudden, this seed begins to bring forth life. My wife and I planted two cucumber seeds. Two. And now... We're throwing cucumbers away by the dozens. And despite the humor of it, isn't that amazing? That, I mean, it's just the smallest, tiniest little seed. And I put it in the ground, and I tended to it very little. And then it just wouldn't stop growing. And then I'd lift up these leaves on that cucumber plant. And there would just be cucumber after cucumber after cucumber. And at first, we tried to keep up by eating them. And then we realized that even five of us trying to eat them, six of us trying to eat them, couldn't keep up with just two little seeds. And so tonight, you come in, and no doubt if you're lost tonight, you hear what we do here, and you see and you listen to Brother Harvey and myself and many men who have stood behind this uh, pulpit in times past, and you, you listen to Sunday school lessons, and you hear the stories, and you listen to the doctrine, and you hear the teaching about Jesus, and you hear us revere him to a degree that no man uh, is revered in this world or ought to be revered to in this world, that we lift up Jesus and we tell you about his death and his burial and his resurrection, and we tell you about his perfect life, and we describe these qualities and grown men cry and cry and cry out of just uttering his name and talking about the goodness of his character because what we realize is though to the eyes of the world if you know Jesus as Paul said in the flesh if you know him according to the human mind you look and you say there's nothing that extraordinary about it but when your life has been transformed by the power of the gospel and you have tasted the fruit that only Jesus 
Jesus Christ can bring, it compels a man to set his life aside and to say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life just telling people about the goodness of this man, going and proclaiming the message that no matter where you're at, in what station in life, no matter how hurting you are, no matter how deeply sinful you have been, no matter how bitter you have been towards God, no matter how many times you have sat in the church house of God and listened to the gospel and rejected and rejected and rejected, we proclaim to you that where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. The fruit which continuously blossoms from the gospel is truly infinite. It has no end to it, though it looks so small. You've just not had it planted in the right condition and grow up. Because when it does, it changes you. Please hear me tonight. The gospel has changed me completely. 180. And it is in the process of still changing me. Painfully changing me. On average, multiple times a week, I find myself in a puddle of tears. Just crying. I'm not an emotional person. When people in my life that are close to me have passed away, a lot of, I just don't cry. I'm just not wired that way. And yet, when I begin to read about the person of Jesus and the things that he says and the things that he does, and I back away and I contemplate his goodness and I see his his invisible hand in my own life, and I see his fruits in my own life, and I partake of those in the brightness of those fruits, I'm called to just abject humility where I bow, and there have been many days where I can't get low enough because of the power of the gospel message, not just that the message has power, but that the message is true. Like, that's one thing that's amazing to me is it's not just that we have these good things to say, but those good things are actually true in a spiritual reality. That's what separates it from everything else. Every other religion is that these things are real. And so this gospel, all week this week, and for most of you children, your whole life, What has happened is that men have stood right here in this exact place. And I know a lot of those men. And let me tell you, they're good men. And they have spent months and years of their life sacrificing and digging in this word that they might prepare for you, that they might give to you this seed in a more clear fashion. And they have varied in temperament. And they have varied in style and in education, and in ability. Their messages at times have probably varied, and they've at times been harmonious. And yet they have faithfully stood and fit the description that Jesus gives here to that man who is like the sower that spreads the seed. And he throws it out. Brother Harvey's been here, and he's thrown it out this week. Brother Ferris, just a couple revivals ago, came, and he threw it out to us. And I love whenever, whenever brethren come and they're different than I am. I think it's good because there are certain t- 
types of ground that prefer certain kinds of seed. And so I recognize that in my limited one-dimensional way of, of sharing with you the gospel message that it is often necessary for another brother to come and, and to spread it in a different way. Yes, it's the same message, but perhaps it's packaged in a way. Perhaps it's expressed in a way that will soften your heart, that will cause you to be more receptive. And so I'm, I'm, I'm elated at the fact that brethren come and when I see God helping them, I want you to know it's another form of God's grace coming to you. Because God is accommodating himself or his message to your personality, in a sense. And so here we find that there's a first group of people. He, now remember, we're going to assume tonight that they're with us tonight. And so the first seed is cast. And this same parable is told us in the book of Luke and in the book of Mark. And it's called the wayside or the highway in another place. That the seed falls to the highway. Now the best I understand what this is talking about is that it was made in rows. Right? That's what most crop, if we go out today, what you'll see even behind our church over here is that there are rows. And at this time, what would happen, and it's not even uncommon today, that next to these rows, periodically, you'll have a little way that you can walk your animal or you yourself can walk. It's something that has been trod down that can carry things that you're not walking in the same ground that you're planting the seed in. And so the seed was cast, and some of that seed, if you've ever, I think of myself spreading grass seed. And very often when I'm spreading it fairly liberally, sometimes as I get close to the driveway, sometimes as I get close to the road, little parts of the seed go out there. But I want to tell us something, that that ground is different than the good fertile ground. Now both are prepared Right? Like if you go out and you see somebody doing highway work, what you'll notice is they spend a lot of time preparing that ground. And there are layers of different sediment and rock and and all these different various things and they're preparing that ground, but the preparation for that ground is with the intention that things can traverse on it very quickly. And that's altogether different than what is needful for a seed. You see, a seed cannot take root and grow and blossom if all the time there's foot traffic and people are trampling all over that ground and pushing it down and stomping it down and hardening that over and over and over. The purpose of that highway was that you could trod upon it and that it would flatten its surface, that you might take a wagon or in today's terms a wheelbarrow, you would take it down that path and you could have a smooth cart ride that direction. And so Jesus says the first type of here are those that are very similar to the type of ground that is constantly being beat down upon by the feet of of men. It is not suitable for the word to lodge deeply, take root, and grow. I think of people today that are too busy for God. They've always got something going on. And listen, it is a sin to be too busy for God. If busyness is your excuse for everything, know that that's a confession of sin. 
The works of God take time to take deep root and then slowly grow in our lives. God's word is not something that can be uh, set aside for that 10 minute devotional in the morning or that hour on Sunday morning where you hear it and then you go about the normal things of your life. No, God's word is something that is meant to take a deep lodge in your heart. And then as the psalmist tells us in Psalm number one, that you're to meditate upon it day and night. And in the process of meditating upon it day and night, those, that seed begins to break open and life begins to come forward. And what I have seen is I've studied the word of God is that I can take one of the most basic stories in all the Bible, one that I've read a thousand times, but I'm devoting myself now to say, you know what? I'm going to think about this the next two days. And as I'm going about my business, as I'm driving in the car and I'm turning off the radio and I'm not answering phone calls and I'm not quick to jump on my devices, I'm just contemplating the word of God. Slowly what begins to happen is the spirit of God begins to awaken that seed and that story begins to affect me very deeply. You see, the gospel is something that was meant to take root. And if your life and circumstances are set up in such a way that nothing can take root, it ought not to be of any surprise that when the gospel is preached, as soon as you get to the back door, the thoughts of what you just heard are completely gone. That's what it says here. It says, The seed fell on the wayside, and then the fowls of the air came, and they ate the seeds. And he said, that was Satan. Satan came and snatched it out of our minds, lest it do take root. And so I ask you the question, lost friend, tonight. When you leave here, I'm not going to ask you what you're going to do. Let me ask you what you're going to think. Many of you are limited to what you're allowed to do because you're a child and you're under the rules of your parents. Thus they say, you know what? We get home from church, you can't look at your screens. You can't get on TV. You can't do all of these things. But that doesn't mean in your mind you don't go to all those places. All the things, all the images, all the people, all the activities that throughout the day have been imposed upon your heart. Is it not true that then after later in the evening when we have set those things down, the echoes of those things continue to sound off in our hearts and in our minds? Here, the seed had nowhere to take root and Satan comes and snatches it. I would say today... This cultural shift that has been so fast and so quick that the younger generation has grown up with has gone almost unimpeded by the Lord's churches. But listen, our children cannot constantly have something entertaining and inundating them. And then for us to expect when the gospel is preached that they're going to pause and consider it deeply and think about it and meditate on it and then let it do its work in their heart. It's not going to happen. No. What was so good when so many of us were kids is that you got bored. Boredom's a good thing, if you're getting what I'm saying. The mind to just go, just to think, 
Nobody is controlling it. Nobody's telling it what to think. Nobody's telling it what to look at. No, your mind is just, it's just going various places. And what you'll find is that after a while, when a mind has had that freedom and the gospel is constantly put before them and the deep questions of life that their heart has already been considering is put before them over and over and over again, then when they're in their own time and when their mind is wandering, guess where the Holy Spirit of God will bring back to their mind if it's not that gospel message that they have heard over and over. They'll think about it and consider it. I can remember whenever I was a kid, I've shared this with the church before, I can remember specific sermons that my mind would randomly gravitate towards to when I was lost. I remember Ron Spurgeon preaching a sermon one time in revival up at Bethel Church in Indianapolis. And I can remember, I want to say a hundred nights, that might be an exaggeration, But I can remember a hundred nights going to bed and my mind was thinking about the next school day and my mind was thinking about basketball and my mind was thinking about all the things that it typically... And as I was going to sleep, as I was losing consciousness and I was thinking about all of these various things, I can remember a hundred nights that sermon and a visual that he put before us would flash in my mind for just a moment and it would cause just a little bit of fear to be a flash pain in my mind and in my heart and I would utter just the most passive prayer, Lord, please don't let me die until tomorrow. Why? Well, back then my mom wouldn't let us have a wired phone in the room, a TV in the room, nothing. I was just alone with my thoughts. And God would violate my thoughts over and it kept it right there in front of me. Tonight, the first type of person that I think I'm tempted to say is the majority if it wasn't for the third audience. So many people today are busied about and their ground, their heart is trampled with everything else. So when the gospel goes out, It has no place to take rest. Is that you, lost friend? Are you already planning when you leave here what you're going to think about? What you're going to put your hand to? Because if that's the place, then the likelihood is even at this present moment, your heart is not in a condition to receive the gospel message. Because you're ripe for Satan's picking. Jesus talks about another group of people Here in this text, the second group of people, and I'll try to hurry along. He says this next group of people are people who initially receive the word, but then the sun comes out and it scorches and they have no root and it dies. I would compare these people very often to people who are just shallow Christian religious people who do it as an accessory to their life. Or, what do I think of it today? Facebook fad Christians. You know, if it's the Facebook fad, if it's the cool thing to share on Facebook what your church is doing, it's going on some cool mission trip, or it's helping some organization, and and you show yourself somehow performing a service, and you want to make sure the camera's there so you can show people your devotion to Christ, and yet it's just a, a quick moment, and it's passing, and really there's no depth to an actual relationship with God. As we've already hinted at earlier today, it's those people who accept Christ in their mind, and they participate in the culture for just a moment, of Christianity or the church culture in America, and then they just 
walk away whenever anything hard, when the message is hard, when the message requires you to sacrifice, when thoughts like you must die daily are preached, whenever things like worldliness and carnality are brought up, whenever people want to reorient a, a, a service from accommodating people to worshiping God, and suddenly no, this isn't fitting my lifestyle. This isn't fitting my preferences. I don't, want, I don't want to do that. And they're met with some or perhaps some hard thing happens in life. And, and after this hardship, they just completely run from God because they said, if there was a God, certainly he wouldn't want me to feel this way. And so they're Facebook fad Christians. While it's cool, while it's good, while my life is good, I'm going to put forth this image. But in reality... I really don't care for it to affect me deeply. Listen, the gospel is intended for one place, and that is for the depth of your heart to change the very core of who you are. That's the gospel. And it's intense, and it's hard, because it is in complete opposition to my sinful preferences and nature. And so what I find when I hear the gospel message regularly is my own sin being confronted over and over and over and me left with this option. If I receive this word into my heart, then it's going to begin to gradually change me or perhaps even radically change me. And that's going to hurt. Or I'll just put the hard face on, move on to the next Sunday and hope he preaches about heaven and good things. This type of people... They have no depth. So let me ask you this question. How much depth do you have with your walk with God? How much depth is there in your concern for your soul? I've expressed to the church before my concern at times that we're seasonally concerned with lost people. That we're willing to participate and testify and it's a wonderful thing during revival but listen three weeks from now four five six weeks from now if our lost loved ones don't get saved they're in the same condition they are right now and the urgency that you feel at this moment is appropriate then as well and if we want them to sense that urgency they must sense it in us here this type of here was one who initially grabs it. And then anything happens and they're just, they're preoccupied. Lost friend tonight, is that you? Does the gospel message get your attention when you have nothing else? But really, it's not that concerning. Here's a third type. I'm not going to talk about this too much because I preached on it a few nights ago. It says that the cares of the world choked out what grew. Initially, it was received, it grew, and then these weeds got around it. And if you've ever worked in a garden, you know that's one of your worst enemies, is the weeds. I mean, Brother Tommy was just over here the other day, and he's very adamant about making sure the weeds don't grow. He said for 21 years, he's been out here in the rocks, every six weeks, making sure the weeds don't grow. And it's a nuisance and it's an annoyance, those weeds, part of the curse. And it says here that the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. I think those are two different things. 
To me, the cares of this life is like the stage I'm at now. I have four children that are in my home, and I have to care for them, and that's, that's burden. I love that burden, but it's a burden. It's hard. It's difficult. And at times, the race, the struggle is weighty. And so sometimes people get so focused on their job and on their, on their children and on their life and on their marriage and on all these various things that the weights of those things choke out the effectiveness of the gospel. They are weighed down by all of that. Or the opposite of that, or I won't say the opposite of it, a, a sister to that was the deceitfulness of riches. That beyond the cares of this life, Now it's the pleasures and riches that can be attained. And those things choke out the effectiveness of the gospel in your heart. So let me ask you this lost young person. Do you fantasize about having money when you get bigger? Do you think a lot about who your spouse is going to be and how many children you're going to have and how much money you're going to have and all the hobbies that you're going to entertain and how many things you're going to do and the experiences you want to have in life? The potential for all of those things are those things which are constantly things revolving in your mind and consume the majority of your thought time. Are those the things that do that? Even if you have not gotten to experiencing those things, have the cares and the deceits of riches already begun to make your ground to where it does not receive the gospel? I'll tell you tonight, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Because there's a fourth type of ground. And it's the only one that produces fruit. The only one. And that's this. The gospel goes out. I'll be honest with you. I've struggled to get it out this week. Just struggled. You know, you, I, know I know you brothers know what I'm talking about. You're preachers. You just sometimes, it just, it's just not there. Regardless. The gospel goes out. The seed. And the gospel message about Jesus Christ and our responsibility to respond to his message has gone out night after night after night. And it has been amazingly watered by the the laymen here, the members of the church here, where one by one, as God has led them to stand up and affirm the message or perhaps expand upon the truth of the messages that have been brought forward and you have heard the watering over and over that God has tried to do among you, that the gospel is hit and what the church has tried to do is cultivate that ground that your heart might be a heart that would receive the word that is given. And so where does it leave us? Lost person, when the gospel goes out, And you don't want to hear it. And you reject. You see, there was this last group of people. And they were the good ground. I saw this video one time. I think it was authentic. I would believe it. It was in China. And as you know, that totalitarian regime is anti-Christian. They openly persecute. Christians. And these people had smuggled in hundreds of Bibles. And there was this video of these, this church got these Bibles. 
And it was brought, and the, the box was opened, and all chaos ensued. And these people were running and, and falling all over themselves in order to get it, grabbing onto that Bible. And when they got it, people were falling to the ground, weeping and kissing it. Because they, for just a moment, could sit where you sit. And yet, as the Ethiopian eunuch asked, who's going to guide me? You know, for him, it was a confusing thing to read one of the most, what to us would be one of the most clear scriptures. Right? Isn't that true? Isn't Isaiah 53? Can we call that the gospel of Isaiah because of how clear that it is about Jesus? And you would, if you ever told a preacher, can you explain to me Isaiah 53? If he could choose one himself to explain, he might go back and choose Isaiah 53. And yet there that man was, hunting, wanting to know, and he crossed the greatest desert in the whole world in order to understand, what is this talking about? I just want to know, what is it? Who is it? Is it the author Or is it someone else who has come and died for my sins? And he crossed this great desert and he finally found a man that sat down with his chariot brought by God himself. God sent Philip out to that man because that man wanted more than anything to know where can I receive the forgiveness of sins? There Philip was and he began to guide him. I don't know how the conversation went exactly, but I would have loved to have been there the first time that Philip said, well, just a few years ago, there was this man, Jesus, who lived where you just came from in Jerusalem. Imagine him telling about his life, and the man had never heard him before. You know, I ran into that one time when I was at work. I was, I was, I was working with a Sikh man. And he looked at me and he said, So who is Jesus anyway? And I was overwhelmed. I thought, where do you even start? And it it caused me to drive home that day from work and think, I don't even think I've ever asked that question. It's almost like it was programmed into me before I can remember who Jesus was. And tonight as you sit in that seat, that seat of great privilege and you remain the envy of so much of the world and here's what so much of the world is doing please hear me tonight I'm going to close in just a moment please hear this I want you to think in this very moment there are people in India right now and they serve billions of gods not millions not thousands billions of gods some of them and they go to this filthy river and they perform these ceremonies in preparation hopefully in preparation for in anticipation of death in hopes that this series of rituals that they perform these series of things they go through will somehow prove advantageous to their life after death or what about the Muslim man and woman. We could say, 
across the world somewhere in Pakistan or Afghanistan, or we could just say right here in Bowling Green, who every day carefully lives in accordance to a very strict law. Women even going as far to where their whole body is covered for the whole entirety of their life except one just little window to the world. And daily they do that. And I'll say with gentleness, ignorantly they do that in hopes that it will prove advantageous when they die. And if they die like that, you know what they're going to learn? That not one moment of obedience to that law did them any good. And that perhaps they lived their entire lives and there was nobody in their life to show them different. I think about that often. I would say this verse 17 is one of my theme verses of my life. Had I just been born over there in Pakistan, I'd have been the most devout Islamist there probably ever was. Had I been born in Jerusalem, would I may not have been that hypocritical Jew? Had I been born in some place in the earth, and yet God, by His abundant mercy, sent more people that I could count to guide me into the way of truth, that my heart now might be ready to receive this gospel message. Tonight, I ask you this question. What are you going to do with this privilege? I I, I lament, and I've mentioned it often, and I'll say it again. It really disturbs me that the modern culture of missionary Baptist churches is that lost people deeply resist. That there is this attitude of avoidance and running. It doesn't have to be that way. No, it can be one where you come to the hospital because you want help. And you're saying, please, give me the medicine that I need. Please, tell me what therapy that I have to do. Please, tell me anything that I can do. Please, I've come here because I know that I am dying and I need help. And I don't care what people think that I'm at the hospital. I don't care uh, whether I'm unable to perform on these athletic feats like other people. What I know down deep is that there is a disease that I am carrying and there is nothing I can do to rid myself and I can pretend that I don't have it. But day after day after day, that passes, it's only going to grow more and more and more deadly and my attitude towards coming here is only going to grow more and more callous and so now I'm here and what I can testify to is that I want to be saved. I've never done this before but our old pastor and I love him so much and I, don't, I haven't thought through whether this is a good idea or not so I'm not saying that but I can remember him doing this probably a half dozen times in my childhood We'd be in the midst of a bunch of revival services and there would be some kids and some adults that were seeking the Lord and then there would be a few of us, me included, who would just sit back and grip my teeth and hold on to the pew and I was not moving. And so he would look at us sometimes. He would not call us by name, but he would say this. For those of you that really want to be saved, will you just raise your hand so we know to pray for you? 
That was a tough place to be put in. Because down deep, I really wanted to be saved. But the whole reason I didn't seek was because of the shame of being up in front of people praying. That was just me. And I remember on every occasion, except one, put my head down, I raised my hand. And I remember that one, I kind of got a little angry at him. I gritted my teeth and I said, I'm going to show him. He's not going to compel me to do something I don't want to do. And he said those tough words. He said, pray for those who raised their hand, but pray even more for those who didn't. Because they need our prayers more than anyone. And so tonight, I'm not going to ask you to publicly say something, but I'm going to ask you the flat question, do you want to be saved? And if so, do you have the type of heart that leads to salvation? One who wants the word and will respond. I pray tonight, if you're lost, Brother Danny, if you get for us a song, if you're lost and you're feeling God convict you of your sin, won't you have a heart that longs for Him more than whatever your heart has longed for up to this point? I don't know. You know, I used to try to psychologically analyze lost people, you know. I try to analyze their behavior and say, well, they were really praying hard this night, or this person always goes to the bathroom, or this person came and prayed, but they didn't have this face on. And I don't do much of that anymore. Because in the end, unless you de- desire with all of your heart to have the gospel, and you're calling out to him with all that you've got, I think the safe assumption from all of us is we just need to pray that God would heighten conviction on you.